Hey, CS Psychos, Rachel Provan here. And in today's episode, I'm going to share about the Dunning-Kruger effect, what it is, and why it's such a pain in the ass for those of us in CS. And of course, some ways to combat it. That's all coming up next, right here on Psychology of Customer Success. Stay tuned. Humans don't think or behave like computers. You can't just run a command and get them to do what you want them to do. So why are you still basing your CS strategy based solely on logic? I'm Rachel Provan, CS leadership coach, award-winning CS strategist, and certified psych nerd. I teach CS leaders how to build and scale world-class CS departments using a combination of strategy, leadership, and mindset, using my secret weapon, psychology. Come join me every Wednesday for Psychology of Customer Success, where we'll dive into why people do the things they do, what motivates them, and the effect that has on your CS strategy, team dynamics, and executive presence. We'll dig into subjects like the helper personality, how thought errors like, it's just easier if I do it, keep your department stuck in reactive mode, and how cognitive bias can really screw up your customer journey. Plus, much more. Make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And make sure to share it with your CS bestie. Talk soon, and here's to your success. Okay, welcome back. This is episode number eight, and today we're talking about the Dunning-Kruger effect. And when I say that, what the heck am I talking about? So the Dunning-Kruger effect is a cognitive bias in which people with limited knowledge or experience in something overestimate their abilities. And just as a refresh, cognitive bias is just when your brain makes shortcuts, which all of our brains do. It's when your brain makes shortcuts so that you can make sense of the world. But sometimes there are errors there. When, it, when you make shortcuts, sometimes you're not going to get the result you want. Basically, Dunning-Kruger is initially someone thinks they can do something because they don't know what they don't know. So this was created or first talked about by David Dunning and Justin Kruger in 1999. And it's due to a catch-22 in thinking where people are unable to assess their own skills and knowledge objectively. So if you've ever thought to yourself, how hard could this be? I'll just YouTube it then you have probably experienced the Dunning-Kruger effect. What's really funny is I was trying to think of some instances of this for myself to share in this episode, and I know I've done it many times. I just can't remember them off the top of my head, and I'm curious if that happens to other people too, and if that's something that the brain does to protect us <laughs> and keep us thinking that we're smart. But anyway, I'm curious if other people experience this. I will talk about something a little bit later, but just curious about you. The Dunning-Kruger effect is a little harsh in its description. It shows a curve. And in the beginning of that curve, when you don't know a lot, you're very confident. And they call that the peak of Mount Stupid. Now, I don't think a lot of people like to think of themselves as ever being at the peak of Mount Stupid, but it certainly gets your attention. So the idea is you start at the peak of Mount Stupid, you fall into the valley of despair where you realize, oh, my God, there's so much more to this than I thought. Uh, like, I'm never going to get it. And you get very depressed. And then if you figure out that it's worth actually learning, you go up through this what they call the slope of enlightenment where you're learning. And then you get to the plateau of sustainability where you actually do know what you're talking about. So again, like I think that the peak of Mount Stupid is a little harsh and it makes everyone feel like that doesn't apply to me. I don't do that. But if we phrase it as 
the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And that's what's funny because that's where imposter syndrome tends to start to come in when you actually know something, but realize that you don't know everything. And it's pretty common not to know everything, but you probably know more than the rest of the people in the room. And in the next episode, I'm actually going to go over imposter syndrome because I know it's a huge problem in the CS community. I think just due to our personality types, we don't tend to be overconfident. We tend to suffer from imposter syndrome. But that doesn't mean that you aren't dealing with other people who are experiencing the Dunning-Kruger effect. So being able to recognize it and then approach it with compassion, know where people are on this scale, I find is really helpful. And look, I'm not saying we're immune. Literally everyone experiences this. And it tends to be really obvious when other people are having the Dunning-Kruger effect, but of course not ourselves. So what was interesting to me is that there's even a tech version of this called the Gartner Hype Cycle. It has almost the exact same curve, but they don't give any credit to Dunning and Kruger, which uh, is interesting. It even uses the slope of enlightenment in its description. But since we work in tech, I thought this was very interesting because it can also help you understand where your product is in this whole life cycle, as well as where the people that you're talking to are in this life cycle. So phase one of the Gartner hype cycle is considered the technology trigger. And that's the stage where it's an emerging technology. It's first introduced to the public. It can come from emerging markets, research labs, think tanks. And there's usually a lot of hype around it. And all it might be able to do, anyone thinking of AI here, there might be prototypes, but there's not an actual functional product or market studies. So it goes into kind of a proof of concept demonstrations. So the peak of inflated expectations is phase two, where there's a lot of industry buzz and excitement and really unrealistic expectations. So I think a lot of people go through this with CS tools where it seems really exciting to get one. It seems like it's going to solve all your problems and that nothing would be a problem anymore if you just had a CS tool. And their advertising can certainly make it look like this. This is going to automate my customer journey. It's going to reach out to my customers when I need it to. I'll just be able to sit back and do the really strategic work. And yes, you can get there, but there's a heck of a lot more to it, unfortunately. But if it was that easy, we probably wouldn't have a job. Once you realize, oh, this isn't going to solve every problem I ever had, that's when you reach phase three of this model, which is the trough of disillusionment. As reality sets in, people see the limitations or tech issues, and the initial enthusiasm feels like it was misplaced. And it leads to a decrease in enthusiasm as people question its viability and its potential applications. And this can also be an all or nothing fallacy or thought distortion. If something can't do absolutely everything, it's useless. And I see this happen with CS tools too, where we tried to install it, but we had problems with data or we installed it and it didn't immediately solve our problems with churn. That's because you have to tell it what to do. It can't immediately know and do everything for you. And it's still worthwhile doing. It's just going to take longer than you thought and take more effort. From there, you move to the slope of enlightenment. And at this stage, there are more realistic expectations about the product's capabilities, limitations, 
and potential use cases. So we can use this product for X, Y, and Z. You know, we can use it to automate some communications. We can use it to monitor usage and see how that ties to renewal. And we can see what activities our CSMs are doing so that they can say, all right, here's what I'm doing. Here's what's working. Here's maybe what I can try differently. And those are all excellent use cases. It's just not CSM in a box. So people are becoming more knowledgeable about what it can accomplish, and it allows for more effective implementation in all sorts of scenarios. When you're realistic about what something can do, you're probably going to use it better and have better results. And finally, the phase five, the plateau of productivity. This is the final phase where the product reaches maturity and widespread adoption and usage. And at this point, people are familiar with it. They know what it does. They understand how to use it effectively. And that ends up leading to more productivity. And it tends to increase sales because it's a known thing. People know this works. It gets the job done. So other places that you can see this in customer success. So when I first learned about the Dunning-Kruger effect, the immediate thing that I thought of was onboarding. Because customers come in, they bought the shiny new thing. They're so excited about what it's going to be able to do for them. And we get them there and we try to give them a success plan and start to implement it and teach them how to use it. And all of a sudden it's, oh, this is going to take work. If you've ever felt like your customer success department is stuck in reactive mode, then this is your chance. Coming May 29th through June 6th, the doors will be open again for the CS Leadership Academy, where you'll get the strategies, leadership techniques, and mindset shifts you need to become a world-class CS leader. When you join, you'll gain access to the step-by-step instructions to build a CS department in the right order, plus the elements that make it work in the real world like time management, executive mindset, plus every template you could ever need. And of course, psychological tools to communicate the value of CS to everyone from your sales team to the C-suite. This isn't just a course. It's a transformation from an overworked IC mindset to a confident leader. Because you'll know, you know your stuff. But the doors will only be open for a few days because after that, we get to work. So if you're ready to step into your role as a leader and elevate your department, visit provansuccess.com slash CSLA to join the CS Leadership Academy so you can lead with confidence, help others, and skyrocket your career. But I have other things to do. This was supposed to solve my problems, not create more work for me. And again, even like with the the gym analogy I've used over and over in the past, you can know that some effort is going to be required on your part, but there's a difference between knowing that and actually having the motivation to execute it. So it's a really tricky time. The other way that I see this happen with onboarding in a more mature organization, and you really have to watch out for this, is in product walkthroughs, right? Like an automated onboarding. Now, I love these. The one thing that you have to be careful of is If you have a product walkthrough, like click here, do this next, this will do that, you have to be able to be sure that customers can close it and then access it again. Because I don't know about you, but I do this all the time. I get a product walkthrough and it says something so obvious. Click here to log in. It's okay. I think I got it. (laughs) 
I've been using a computer since I was 14, 16, something like that. I know how to log in. Good. So I close it or maybe it says press here to to start a document, something really easy. So I just say, yeah, 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 I don't need this. I just want to get to doing what I want to do. And I close the tutorial. And then maybe two minutes later, I am playing around and I can't figure out how to do what I want to do. And I think, where's that tutorial again? Where was that? And I can't get it back. And a lot of systems with which you can do tutorials are set up like this. I'm sure there are ways around it. I've seen products where you can bring it back. Just make sure there's some little link they can press to to bring back the tutorial when they realize that they're in the middle of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Because otherwise, what happens is what they say is this thing isn't intuitive at all. This didn't do what I thought it was going to do. It's useless. So another way that this can cause us to bump our heads a little bit in CS is if you're working at a startup, if they've never had CS before, a lot of times they'll hire a founding CSM. And this is a way to save money by not hiring an experienced CS leader. And sometimes they're not even hiring like a new CS leader to actually lead the department. They're just hiring a CSM and often giving them to sales or ops or support, It really not using it the way it's meant to be. And I say this all the time, just because you call something customer success isn't going to get you the effects that you want unless you're actually practicing customer success and doing all the things that are involved in that. Sometimes they'll hire someone who hasn't built a CS department before. They'll actually call it a head of CS or something. But if they haven't built a department before, that is a very different thing than talking to customers and getting them to their desired outcome. It's systems thinking. It's big picture versus being in the weeds. And as I've said before, if you're doing both, it's almost impossible to do it well. I, I don't like to say never, but again, don't not Kruger yourself and think, ah, I can do it. I can handle it. And the other issue there is the company doesn't realize how complicated it's going to be and what's going to be involved. But if you have a new leader, they also don't know what's going to be involved. So a lot of times I'll see people having interviews and a founding CEO will say, OK, what we want is 97 percent renewal and an NRR of 115 within the first six months to a year. And the person who's being a first time leader of CS, especially if they've worked somewhere where that kind of thing is the norm because it's a more mature organization, they'll probably say, yeah, sure, of course I can do that. And when they actually start and actually try and do it themselves, they realize they're in deep something. <laughs> they realize they're in trouble. And this is something where I remember this applying to me in being a new leader, being promoted up from being a CSM, which I did very well. I got great results. So they made me a manager. I was so excited. I was so sure that I would be great at it because I was good with people. I cared about them. I was going to be the best boss ever. I knew about CS because look what a good job I did. I'm just going to show everyone how I did it and they'll do the same thing. Boom, success. And if you've managed it all, you've probably figured out that that doesn't work and it doesn't work hard. <laughs> like I, I hit my head hard on that one. People don't necessarily succeed at things the way you do. And 
caring about people is not the same thing as leading them and giving them the clarity and boundaries they need to succeed. With all of these things, that initial realization that you actually don't know what you're doing feels terrible. And the thing that you actually have to realize, I think what makes or breaks this as to whether you even proceed with what's next, whether it be a technology or leadership or trying to get your hair the right color and realizing you can't do that yourself, is, is this result worth it? So with a lot of this, I just don't think it's very kind to people. And given the fact that every single person goes through this, I don't think it's a particularly useful way to look at things in terms of the peak of stupidity or whatever. I prefer to think of this as the four stages of confidence. So the first stage is, and I know I'm giving you a lot of stages, but to me, it's really interesting how all these different elements of psychology, technology, learning, all tend to follow a very similar model. And a lot of them don't acknowledge any of the others in these studies. So the four stages of competence, unfortunately, I couldn't really find consistent attribution, like who originally came up with it. It's attributed to a few different people, but mainly it came up in the 60s at NYU. Woohoo, I went there. I'll be paying for it for the rest of my life. Anyway, so it starts with unconscious incompetence. So the person doesn't understand or know how to do something, and they don't necessarily recognize that because they don't know what's involved. They might think that the skill is useless, and they have to recognize that they don't know and that it's worth knowing in order to progress to the next stage. And stage two is conscious incompetence. If you ever hear like the first stage is admitting you have a problem, that's basically where we are here. So they realize they don't know how to do something they don't understand. They recognize the deficit, but they also recognize the value of learning it. And annoyingly, the making of mistakes is often going to be integral here to actually learning and moving to the next stage. There's just no way you're going to do everything perfectly and voila, you've mastered it. So again, when we've talked about growth mindset, things like that, a mistake is not the end of the world. It's literally how you learn. It's how you get better. It's not a failure. It's a learning process. The next stage is conscious competence where the person understands or knows how to do something, but it takes a lot of work. They may need to break it down into small steps, and there's really heavy conscious involvement. They have to concentrate really hard while they're executing that new skill. And given that it requires a lot of concentration to demonstrate it, if that concentration is broken, like something happens, they're going to have trouble picking up where they left off. It just it's a process where it takes a lot of effort, a lot of concentration and something that's difficult. It requires motivation and motivation is in limited supply in everyone's brain. So really trying to remember why you're doing this, what the benefit is and having a consistent practice can be very helpful. Knowing I'm going to do this every day while I have my morning coffee, I'm going to practice this skill or I'm going to practice this 20 minutes before I go to bed. Just having something you can anchor it with makes it more likely for you to actually do it rather than waiting to be motivated or when you have the time. And the final stage is unconscious competence. And that's where it's become second nature and it can be performed easily. 
It can be performed while executing another task. I'm big on this with knitting. I can knit while watching a TV show. I don't even have to look at it. And people look at me like I'm nuts. I can do it with my eyes closed. But that's something that I spent years practicing. And the initial stages of it were, and I was eight, and I don't remember it very well. But when I watch new people learning it, it's very tricky. But you do get a muscle memory of it. Yeah, it can be performed while executing another task. And you may be able to teach it to others depending on how and when it was learned. Now, another area to be careful of Dunning-Kruger-wise is just because you know something, it doesn't mean you're necessarily a good teacher. It's helpful to know how to break things down for people in small chunks and not try and just show them the whole thing and expect them to understand it right away. So I tend to think that's debatable. But if you can teach someone and teach them well, yeah, you definitely know what you're doing. And that's why in medical school, they have a lot of people do a process called uh, see one, do one, teach one. So they see a procedure performed, they do it themselves, and then they have to show someone else how to do it. Did they do it perfectly? No. And that's a little scary since they're doing that on us, our bodies. But it is a very effective way of learning fast. So I do want to talk about one other thing with this, which is the sort of the flip side of the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is when you're on that other side, when you're on that unconscious competence side, you it's easy to think that other people have the same understanding that you do. And in CS, we tend to use a lot of jargon. I remember talking to my mom once about it, and I don't remember what I was saying, something about NRR, GRR, CSAT, NPS. And she's like, Rachel, I'm going to need you to use some vowels. And it's true. We have all this jargon, all these things that we talk about that are our language. We understand it. But if we try and talk to the customer that way, or even with our own product, we're so used to it that it seems intuitive to us because we've been using it for so long. But that doesn't mean it's intuitive to a customer. And again, this is something that happens with the brain. It's something called heuristics, which are mental shortcuts. And they can keep you from explaining things clearly because you no longer process those things that you skip over. So you don't know to add them to that person. And this happens a lot with CS, not only in explaining product to our customers, but in assuming that the C-suite sees the value of CS and what will happen if it's not done right. I see this a lot in new leaders explaining initiatives that they want to do with with CS and not understanding why other people don't immediately buy into it. And I let them know you have to explain what the result is going to be. Yes, it makes sense to us that if we get the customer the result they want, they're going to renew. They're going to buy more. They're going to tell other people and they're going to keep renewing, keep buying. But if you don't explain that and that it's not something that happens automatically, other people aren't necessarily going to get that because they don't have exposure to people not getting it. That's something that you have to explain very delicately sometimes because, again, you don't want to uh, call anyone's baby ugly. But you have to paint it as customers don't always do things correctly, even if it, it could be the most intuitive software in the world. And they would still find a way to screw things up because as people, that's sometimes what we do. So just try and remember to include every step. If someone's like, yeah, 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 I get it. Or, sorry, not include every step. 
because you don't want to bore people, but just state the obvious. <laughs> it's always okay to state the obvious and you're much less likely to uh, get buy-in for what you're trying to do. If we do this, this will happen. It's not a foregone conclusion for anyone else but you. So finally, I just want to talk a little bit about how to counteract the Dunning-Kruger effects as best as possible. The first one is measure your results. And something that we do when we measure our results is we love to add context. And we love to add context as to why something is not our fault if we're not getting good results. And we do that, but we don't necessarily change anything because we blame things that are beyond our control. And look, I'm not going to say that everything is controllable, everything is your fault, but it's always worth saying, what can I control here? What could I change? What else could be causing this other than these outside influences? So it's measuring your results without adding context, which doesn't feel good, but it's worth doing. Developing a growth mindset, like we've talked about, understanding that you get better slowly by learning, by making mistakes, and that it's not always going to be easy. And that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you or your abilities. It just means you're learning. Another thing is accepting constructive criticism, which is hard. You know, it as we've talked about a little bit, it triggers fight or flight when we get criticism at work because it feels like it threatens our survival. It threatens how we put food our, on our table, how we take care of our families, our place to sleep. Those are all really the bottom of the hierarchy of needs. Am I safe? Can I get food, water, air, and shelter? So even though that's not immediately threatened, our brain interprets it as so. So it's going to take work to accept that kind of constructive criticism. And it's okay if your brain immediately freaks out. It's just a matter of taking some time with it, feeling your feelings, and then saying, okay, but is there anything to this? Is it possible this person is just trying to help me? And what if I do an experiment? What if I try their suggestion? Because most of the time, that really is what it is. They're not trying to make you feel bad. They're not trying to one-up you. They're trying to help. Because you cannot possibly have an objective view of yourself. Nobody does. It's not possible. Beyond that, seeking continuous improvement. Never saying, I'm done. I'm the best there is at this. There's nothing more for me to learn. That completely shuts you down from any kind of innovation. It's one of the worst things that you can do for your skills, your abilities, your chance to make things better. And finally, especially as a leader, you need to encourage an environment that values humility, you know, where you can say, I don't know, where you can ask a question and understand that you're not going to be made fun of for it, where there's just zero shaming of people. Also adding the elements of being collaborative, which again requires that psychological safety of it's OK to not know things here. We're working together and putting all our brains together so that we're more effective. That's really what I've got for you today. Thanks so much for joining us. If you want to take the next step in your leadership, CS strategy, and mindset, make sure you're on the wait list for the next round of CS Leadership Academy, which is coming up really soon, where I walk you through these processes step by step. If you want to send me a message, if you want me to talk about something on the podcast, please let me know. Hit me up on LinkedIn, or we now have a very exciting webpage. That's psychologyofcustomersuccess.com. So until next time, get some rest, take care of yourself, 
and make sure to share this with your CS bestie. Talk soon, and here's to your success.